Our passage this morning will be Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. Go ahead and turn there, and let's pray and ask for the Lord to help. I appreciate many of you expressing that you have been praying. We are so dependent on God to feed us each week from His Word. Let's pray now to this end. Father, we thank You. We thank You for gathering a people together. We thank You for the hearts filled with a genuine joy at this truth that we have come to share and celebrate. We ask now that You would cause us to share and celebrate it even more as You speak to us through Your Word and fill us with Your Spirit. In Jesus' name, Amen. Matthew 2, verses 1-12 through 12 says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed on their own to their own country by another way. So we stand on the edge of a new year. It's a good time to review um, the past year, to review successes, failures, time to revisit budgets, a time to make. New Year's resolutions. Maybe some of you have already started that and have that as, as a tradition. I think it's a good, a good thing to do is to think with intentionality. Jonathan Edwards, it, it, uh, many people know of his resolutions he wrote as a young man. One of them um, was something to the order to live as long as I live with all my might. Um, that, that sort of approach to life is really good. The problem with resolutions is they're limited. We can resolve actions. We can't resolve outcomes. You can resolve this year to eat less junk food, but you can't resolve to have fewer health issues. You have influence, but you don't have complete control there. You can resolve to follow a budget, but you can't resolve to slow inflation or lower interest rates. You can resolve to have that regular family worship, but you can't save your children. You can resolve to pray for mercy on our nation 
And you can resolve to become more politically active this year, but you cannot resolve to have a different president. Unless you decide to go move out of a, or you resolve to move out of the country. Um, now I hope you will do, resolve to do most of these and, and many more. But acknowledging our, our limitations, it doesn't limit our hope. It's not the end of hope. Because we have a God who despite our limitations, He is unlimited. And this year, even though we will face many things that are outside of our control, None of them are outside God's control. He, the Lord, the Lord who we read about in in the, uh, the passage we have before us, He is Lord of all. He is God over creation. He is God over the nations. He is God over our stations and the circumstances of our lives. And in our text this morning, this familiar story of the wise men coming to Jesus, He calls them all to testify that Jesus is Lord. The star says, He is here. The wise men say, He is here. These stories in the latter half of the chapter that we won't go too deeply into, they say, He is here. He is here. The ones the prophets foretold. Jesus The Christ, the Messiah whose kingdom will never end and whose rule will stretch around the globe. This is a God who can resolve outcomes and His resolutions are never broken. So as we enter the new year, we have very good reason to hope because we have found the Savior King. If you come to Jesus if you come to Jesus like the wise man here, wise men here in our story come to Jesus. If you bow to Him, who has been born King of the Jews, you bow to the One who governs all things. He can be trusted. He must be trusted. And so this morning we we have this very simple idea: trust in God. This new year, trust in God. Put your hope in Him. Hope in a God who governs creation as we see in the star. Hope in a God who governs hearts as we see with the Magi. Hope in a God who governs stories. And kids, as you follow along, I hope you will, as you follow along each of these points, I want you to get, you can draw on your your notes, three pictures. The one, hope in God who governs creation. Draw a star. You can draw a star. Hope in a God who governs hearts. And we're going to talk about the Magi. You can draw a crown if you want. The wise men probably weren't kings. We have no record of that. Tradition has assigned that they were kings from uh, different regions. Um, But that's not here in the text. So you can draw a crown if that's helpful. for, um, Or you can draw a heart. God who governs hearts. And then with the last one, hope in a God who governs stories. You can draw a domino. Not like a Domino's pizza, like a domino. And we'll get to it, but essentially, what happens when you trip that first domino? All the other ones go down. So we'll get there. So first we start with the star and a God who governs creation. Look at verses 1-3 through again. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw His star when it rose and have come to worship Him. 
When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So our burning question this morning is, what are these wise men doing here? What are they doing here in Matthew? And this is the same question that the people in Jerusalem had. It was causing a buzz. Everybody was talking about it. Why is this caravan of wealthy foreigners from the distant east, why are they here? What are they doing here asking about a new Jewish king? And one of the things you should know is um, we talk about a caravan. We don't know that there were three. We don't know that they were kings. We don't know that there were three wise men. We know that three types of gifts are mentioned: um, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But this could have been a, a whole group. I think it was Athanasius who, who said it was uh, up to about fourteen. Um, all we know is there was a group of wise men. They probably they were carrying treasure. They probably weren't traveling alone. That would have been dangerous. And, and they're here and they're causing a stir. And people are wondering, what are they doing here? And of course, the simplest answer is they're here because of a star. Magi, um, translated wise men in many of your Bibles, was originally the name of a Persian priestly caste, a group of people, priests um, in Persia, uh, but was later used widely of magicians and astrologers, people that studied the stars. When Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they come to uh, Babylon, when they're carried away, they're added to a whole group of wise men that include, um, from Daniel, the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. In the Septuagint, one of those gets translated magi, just like here. And if, so we don't know whether the wise men in our story are, are from Babylon or, or Persia, for that matter. But we do know that they're from the east. We know a couple more things about these magi. One is they were clearly students of the stars. Whether from superstition or from scientific interest, they were paying attention to things that happened uh, uh, up there. Coming to that time, there wasn't this sharp break between our religious lives and, and, and the real world. They said, no, the same forces, the same beings, the same powers at work in the heavens are at work in the fates of men. And so they expected to see a connection. Second, these wise men seem to have been exposed to the Hebrew Scriptures, at least at some level. Their words here have echoes of Balaam's oracle in Numbers 24, 17-19. You can jot that down. Numbers 24 says, A star shall come out of Jacob. And a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion. It's one thing to notice extraordinary things in the sky. And somebody can excuse astrologers for assuming that there's a connection between that and an important event like some king being born. But why the Jews? Israel is not very globally important right now. These Magi, though, are very specific and very confident. They have traveled probably hundreds of miles and they want to know, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star. Not somebody else's star. So so the only reasonable explanation 
explanation is that these men were looking for the Jewish Messiah. They were expecting Him, anticipating Him, hoping for Him. We can't know how much they knew. They didn't seem to know Micah and the prophecy about Bethlehem being the birthplace. But they seem at least familiar with the Old Testament prophecies about a coming king, a son of David whose reign would have a global reach. We read about this in lots of places. Uh, one of them, um, we, we've run across them in the Psalms. Um, one is in Psalm 72, verses 8, and, uh, 8 through 12. says, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow down before him. His enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before Him. All nations serve Him. Is it so surprising that we would find an imprint of God's Word and God's people who had been exiled in the East? The, The Jewish people would have taken the Scriptures and the traditions of the hope they had in God's Messiah with them into exile. We know that at least Daniel had a copy of the prophet Jeremiah and probably other scrolls from the Scriptures. Maybe all of them. He was an important man. He was made the leader over all the wise men in Babylon. And this influence seemed to continue into the reign of the Medes and the Persians as Daniel maintains prominence under both Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. The Jews are not nobodies in that time. And and even with the story of Esther, God's rescue of His people in that story climaxes with Esther's pious cousin Mordecai being made second in command. And it says in Esther that many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. So at one level, we shouldn't be surprised to find remnants of this impact It's a crater created by God's people carrying God's hope and God's message and God's Scriptures into another part of the world. We shouldn't be surprised to find this influence, but at another level, it is pretty remarkable because we're talking centuries later. Centuries later, there are still people in the Far East whose lives have been impacted by the Word of God. And God sends them a miraculous sign a star, to let them know that their hopes have been realized. Which brings us back to the star. What is it? People have tried to connect it to a natural occurrence like a comet or supernovas, a planet, a star blowing up, or a planetary conjunction. And it could be one of these. Um, None of them line up perfectly historically. Um, I think Haley's comment was supposed to have occurred like 7 BC. And Jesus just, you should know, Jesus probably wasn't born at 0 BC. Um, Herod was supposed to have died around 4 BC. So our timeline for all of humanity should probably be shifted a little bit. Um, But uh, the, 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 the natural occurrences we know about probably don't line up with this. Um, but it could be. It could be one of these. And yet none of them quite fit our story in the text either. The, the star is first visible hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem and serves initially as a signpost, something to call the wise men to Judea. 
Ultimately, though, we find them here in Jerusalem, uh, the capital city, looking for the next clue, like a scavenger hunt or something. They're looking for the next clue, asking the people who should know, hey, where's your king? When we pick up in verse 9, the star behaves differently and is able to lead them more precisely, arguably directly to the house where Jesus is living. So, observing the aspects of this strange behavior, John Calvin notes, not one of these things belongs to natural stars. These weren't the stars God made back in Genesis 1. And Calvin isn't saying this didn't happen. He's just saying we're dealing with something different. What we It refers to a star, but what we have here is phenomenological language. All that means is we're describing things as we see them, as we experience them. It looks like a star. We're going to call it a star. Um, there's no quibbling over whether it's actually a giant ball of burning gas um, trillions of miles away. And, and it's, 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 it's even possible that God uses a cluster of events, an exploding star to jumpstart their journey, and then it's something more local and supernatural to get them to Bethlehem and to the house. And, and I mean, while we're considering the miraculous, there's no reason why the star couldn't have appeared only to them. Uh, we see selective revelation in a number of places in in the scriptures. You have a bunch of angels, an angelic host, an army surrounding a city that only Elijah can see. And then when Elijah asks, God allows his servant also to see them. So we have things like this. When Jesus, God, test, his father testifies to Jesus and says, this is my beloved son. And uh, I think this is John 14. And... Um, the uh, some people just think it's thunder, and, and so there, there is a selective experience of supernatural phenomenon. Um, of course, some people don't like this. They don't like miracles. They say those things don't happen. And, and our response is, "You're right. They don't. That's what makes it so remarkable that it did." Um, so God sends a star to bring the Magi to Jerusalem. Which brings us then to the second point, the Magi. Um, And the point that God not only governs creation, but He governs hearts. The real story is not the presence of of the star in the sky, but the presence of the Magi in Judea. What are these Gentiles doing here asking about the Messiah? We've already started to answer that question. They're here because of the star. But more importantly... They have heard about the king. The king who would rise out of Israel. But so has Herod. So have the priests and the scribes. So have all the people. All the Jews in Jerusalem. Yet, it's the only these outsiders who find their way to Bethlehem. Only these wise men come with hearts ready to bow to Jesus. Why? These wise men are here here in our Bibles to show us that God governs hearts. They're not here because they were naturally more spiritually attuned. Their yoga just put them in the right place to to receive that. They started with the same Romans 3 heart we all do. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. Yet here they are, seeking the Savior. And worshiping Jesus. 
They used the expression worship. I do think these were men who had been impacted by, at some level, by this, this hope of the king, the king of the Jews. But what we don't know is when they come to Jerusalem, how much they know. And when they say we have come to worship him, whether they meant, as the word can mean, fall down and worship as a god, or fall down and show reverence as you would to a king, a great king. Herod has no problem echoing their language and saying, yeah, I'm going to do that too. You go to Bethlehem, find out some things, come back and tell me so that I can also worship Him. And the Jews had no conception of the Messiah being the God-man. They weren't prepared for that. Herod was not prepared to go and actually give spiritual worship to this baby as somebody might fall down and show reverence, show homage um, to, to, to a king. But these guys, back to the wise men, they are here because God calls whom He calls. And, and His sheep, when He calls, they hear His voice and they follow Him. And so He calls these foreigners from the east as the first fruits of the Gentiles. He calls them with their rich gifts as a down payment of what Isaiah in Isaiah 60 calls the wealth of the nations. Isaiah 60 goes on to say, a multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense. Doesn't mention the myrrh, but it's not excluded. And shall bring good news, the praises of Yahweh. Sadly, the people of Jerusalem, they miss these signs. Maybe they expected more camels. They, they missed the significance, but they didn't miss the Magi. They were talking about them. Whatever this entourage consisted of, they were noticeable enough to hit the front page in Jerusalem, as, as we read in verse 3. Herod heard about this and he was troubled and all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. And so, in fact, Herod is so troubled that um, we see in verse 7 that he has to be sneaky when he meets with these guys because he doesn't want to publicly legitimize them. He needs information from them, but he, you know, because he wants to know when the star appeared at first. But you can bet that his press secretary on the side was being dismissive. You know Persians. They, uh, they can get a little crazy. So, in our story, Herod serves as a dramatic contrast with the faith of the Magi. These guys are seeking, they're seeking the king to be celebrated. Herod, he seeks the king as a rival to be eliminated. The Herod, the, the, the Magi, they, they come to pay, pay worship, to pay homage. Herod, he pays only lip service, saying, yeah, yeah, come back and tell me. Bring me word that I too may come and worship him. But Herod is not the only, uh, the only point of contrast here in, in our text. The, the religious leaders also look much different than the, than the Magi. If Herod's response is one of fear and envious hatred, the response of the chief priests and scribes is, meh. Indifference. Disinterest. 
They know the right answers. They know their Bibles. When Herod asks where the Christ would be born, they point to Micah 5.2. They point to Micah 5.2. In the text here, it says, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's a bit of a paraphrase from the original. It kind of has some interpretive elements in there, but that's, that's fine. That's uh, appropriate. And the, the, the chief priests and the scribes that Herod assembles, they say, Bethlehem. If it's going to be anywhere, it'll be Bethlehem. But that's it. They seem to go home. They're not mentioned again. The Magi tra- travel for hundreds of miles to find Jesus, and these guys won't even go five miles down the road to Bethlehem. We can be like the scribes sometimes. We can know a lot of stuff. We can have minds stuffed full of knowledge about the Scriptures. But there's no action. In John 5, 39, Jesus warns people like that. You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about Me, but you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. Come to Jesus. You don't need to have all of your questions answered to obey His command. He says, repent and believe. Trust Me. Put your hope in Me. Some of you think that what you need this year is a little more clarity when what you actually need is just to obey Jesus. You already know the next step. Of obedience. Do that. In faith. Do that thing. Ask that brother to be your accountability partner. Repent of coveting and get rid of Instagram. That's not a blanket uh, condemnation of Instagram, but somebody needs that. Uh, Honor the Lord with your giving. We don't need the next five steps. We need so many times one. One step. Kids, this is, this is one thing that Frozen got right. Do the next right thing. If God gives you something to do, do that thing. If you're 11, you don't need to know what your life calling is. You need to do your school and honor your parents. By the way, if you're an adult kid, you still need to honor your parents. And parents, you and I don't need the master plan for how we are going to solve all of our kids' behavioral problems. Some of us might just need to give somebody a hug and apologize. Sometimes obedience can be scary. If coming to Jesus... In obedience scares you, you may be finding that we can be like Herod too. We're worried about what Jesus' lordship might cost us. What will it cost you? Everything. Will it be worth it? Absolutely. What did it cost the Magi? I mean, they left behind whatever their life was in the East. To take this journey, 
when some of the uh, the guys like Ezra came back from the the, um, the exile, it took them about four months to get back. This is not a quick like jog to the grocery store around the corner. But they came. And they came with their treasures. Because Jesus was worth it. And if you ask them whether it was worth the price of admission, they would say, absolutely. I think by the time we get to the end of our story and it says they fell down and worshipped Him, I think it was a different sort of worship than they even had in their minds when they say we have come to worship Him. So we can all be like this. Um, like the Herod and like the, the, the scribes calculating or complacent. Because this is our natural state. This is where our hearts are. But God is not limited by the natural. He is Lord over the heavens. And He is Lord over our hearts. And so if this year you're starting with a lot of anxieties and a lot of fears, and a lot of problems, He can handle that. Come to Jesus. Finally, three, God governs stories. And the here kids is where we have the dominoes. Because again, what we're going to see is that when you hit the first domino, they all start falling. And we didn't read the latter half of this chapter in Matthew. But... Um, if we wanted to expand, we could have included it because it is kind of all part of one story. We, we close in verse 12 that the Magi depart to their own country by another way, even though Herod wants them to come back. Some people think it's odd that Herod would say, uh, come back and tell me, that he wouldn't actually send scouts or something. The most natural way for the Magi to return home would have been through Jerusalem. It didn't make sense to go any other way. And he would have promised, I'll put you up. We'll talk about what you saw. It'll be a good, good time. Um, but they don't. Because God says, you don't want to do that. They're warned. And so they go home a different way. Well, that, that sets in motion a, a chain of events. Uh, you, you remember that Herod had instructed um, them to do this thing. When they don't do it, um, he, uh, he's ticked. And um, knowing knowing how Herod is going to respond to his to his plans being foiled, God sends an angel to warn Joseph. The family makes a midnight escape to uh, out of the country, setting up this deja vu moment as God repeats what He said in Hosea 11: "Out of Egypt I called my son." With so many of these prophecies we see, there are, there are typology, there are things that like we've seen this before. It, it, it makes sense that this is the Messiah. And so God sends His Son off to Egypt so that He will say again, out of Egypt I have called My Son. And as foreseen, Herod's rage is cruel. He is unable to identify the specific threat to His throne, so He leaves nothing to chance. He orders the slaughter of all the babies, two years and under, within the, the Bethlehem region. And this sends up a cry uh, in that area, echoing the despairing mothers in Jeremiah 31.15, which is why here in our, our text, verse 18 says that we would hear a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentations, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But evil 
has an expiration. And so Herod dies and God lets Joseph know he can bring his family back to Israel. But nervous that Herod's son was ruling in his place, Joseph doesn't want to go too close to Jerusalem. And so he goes back to his old Galilean stomping grounds, the town of Nazareth. A place of no significance other than its insignificance. Because prophets like Isaiah made it clear that the Christ would grow up without glory, like a root out of dry ground. Well, Nazareth was dry ground. Good Jews like Philip would say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet, it would be as Isaiah 9 pictured it when it He said, in the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, that's where Nazareth is, and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, Galilee of the nations. So Jesus would not be known for his birth home of Bethlehem, where David had been born, but for his childhood in Galilee, he would be despised as a Nazarene. With each of these stories, we get just a snapshot. A few verses. Matthew doesn't expand on them because led by the Holy Spirit, he knows we don't need to know what their life in Egypt looked like or how long they were there or whether the Magi's gold was the way they were able to fund this getaway. These things are not the point. Matthew has a very specific point he wants us to get. Here in the way each of these sections, these little uh, vignettes, each of them close with a reference to the prophets. This was to fulfill what the prophets, what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Thus was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. Boom, boom, boom. Matthew wants his readers to know that this Jesus was the Messiah. We have three witnesses. The star said, He's here. The Magi said, He is here. And, and these stories here, even down to the places where Jesus grew up, they say He's here. And here. And here. Just as the prophets said He would be. Friends, God governs stories. As we start a new year, He governs your story too. We can trust Him with 2024. We can trust Him with the things that we will resolve and try to do. We can trust Him when we fail at those and need a Savior who washes us clean. We can trust Him and we can have hope. We can have hope in the God who governs creation, the God who governs our hearts, and the God who governs our stories. We can have hope, and hope as we read in Romans 5 does not put us to shame. God will use creation and He will use our, our hearts and He will use our stories to bring us to Jesus and to make much of our Savior. We may not love all the paths. They might not all be easy. Not everything the wise men went through probably was easy. Certainly, as we looked at with the story of Mary and Joseph, not everything they had to walk through was easy. And yet each one of these that we have gone through with the Christmas story, with during Advent, have spoken of hope 
Each one of them would say it was completely worth it. It's completely worth it. And so this year, I urge you, come to Jesus. Put your hope completely in Him, the One who governs all things. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We ask that You would cause it now to embed in our hearts that it would shape the way we approach this new year, trust in You. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.